Have a seat. Thank you. If you are new here, if you are investigating the Christian faith, if this is your first time in a church or you feel like you've been in church all your life, we are glad that you are here. This is a place where we value asking the tough questions about uh, Christianity and getting them answered and seeing what Jesus has to say to us, for us, and through us. And this morning we're continuing a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are looking at uh, the particular saying of Jesus that you will see in the reading uh, about purity of heart. I am uh, looking forward to this. So if you'll turn to the back panel of your bulletin, you will see the relevant scriptures that we will be looking at and reflecting upon today. And now for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that a friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was, uh, I'd finished practicing law. I had gone into Christian ministry. I was working at Western University my first year there uh, as a campus ministry worker. I was enjoying the work, but I suddenly noticed in the spring that I was really frustrated. I thought when I left the practice of law and entered into this Christian ministry thing that I would see significant victory and freedom from my anger, my lust, and my defensiveness. And here I was, and the lust and anger and defensiveness were still there. (laughs) Change of job had not changed me. And I just read this verse about purity of heart, and I felt like a failure. Many Christians who are here, when they hear this beautiful promise, blessed are the pure in heart, they feel a lot like I do. We say to ourselves, I'm not pure in heart. And most people who are here who are not Christians, and there are always many of you here on every given Sunday, you are wondering what all this means. In our culture, we value honesty and authenticity of heart. You flourish by getting in touch with your deepest desires and living them out, not restraining them or something. This feels old, and this feels primitive and a relic of another more religious era The gospel, on the other hand, says that we actually flourish 
by allowing God to transform our deepest desires into something more beautiful than we could have imagined. And that if we have the courage to do that, we get to see and commune with God himself now and forever. This morning I want to break this passage down to three different ways to reflect upon it. Firstly, the promise itself. Secondly, the problem. Thirdly, the pathway to achieving this promise. Firstly, the promise itself. He is promising something beautiful, isn't he, Jesus? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's look at those two phrases in turn. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, the first and obvious meaning is that the heart has no impurities in it. The heart is clean of evil through and through. There's just clean. This is part of what it means, indeed. This is part of what we should aspire to do and be. We should aspire to have clean hearts, to be free in our minds and thoughts and attitudes of hatred, jealousy, envy, selfishness, of resentment, lustful, exploitive desires. We should desire to be clean. If you don't desire this and you call yourself a Christian, I should ask you to think about that. If you're not a Christian and you're one of the average people from Toronto, you might be a bit confused because, as I said, in our culture we're taught to get in touch with your feelings and then just authentically express them as long as you don't hurt too many people. Purity of heart really does sound like the relic of a more primitive and superstitious era, except I submit to you it isn't. It's actually how all of us think, even the most progressive and secular of us. Let me ask you these questions. What would you do if I told you there was someone who felt quite comfortable living in thinking and desiring sexist thoughts? Would you not want to purge them of that sexism? What if they had homophobic thoughts? What if they had racist thoughts? Would you not want to purify them of those thoughts? Our culture is constantly trying to do so. We actually believe in purity of heart. We have just given ourselves the right to define what is purity of heart rather than God. The gospel agrees that we should be pure in heart. But the standards that Jesus has for what constitutes purity are different and deeper and more profound and more beautiful and to be preferred over the culture's version. Because when cultures to come look back on this culture that is, they will say, how is it that when you asked for purity of heart, you didn't ask for people to stop countenancing and tolerating sex slavery? How is it that this culture, which was so into equality and justice and care, could allow that? How is it that this culture, which claims to be aflame with the Me Too movement, could have such a view of pornography? How is it that this culture could have such a callous view of the sacredness of life, both in its beginning and its end? The gospel says we should be pure in heart as Jesus defines it, that we should have a a love for others, filled with a love for God and our neighbor, that our love should be caring and self-sacrificial, that our own desires should be regulated, moderated, and restrained by that law and desire to love others and to love God. Jesus wants our desires to be conformed to His and our love to be conformed to His. That is part of what it means to be pure in heart, to be clean, 
to have your thoughts purified and your desires pure. But there's a second meaning embedded within this, and scholars think this may be the more dominant meaning because that one, the first one I said, just really makes us all feel we fail. And the second one, and the one most prefer now, is this idea of undivided loyalty to God. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 puts it well. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And, sorry, now he defines it. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see, that double-mindedness is what the psalmist considers impurity of heart. It's the same double-mindedness that this passage of James here also seems to indicate. If you look down near the end of the passage, verse 8 of James chapter 4, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's that removal of double-mindedness that is the part of the essence of what this purity of heart means. Now, the problem with this idea of undivided loyalty is the same problem I have with this clean from impurity definition. I don't measure up. And so the question has to be asked, does Jesus mean it's a place to arrive at or it is a direction to move in? And I submit to you that it is a place we do want to and will arrive at. But it is at least a direction we need to be moving in. If you have a growing sense of your own dependency on God for His grace because you need it, you're going in the right direction. If you have a growing sense of the beauty and the greatness and the kindness of God because of His unconditional grace towards you and gratitude is growing in you, you're moving in the right direction. If you have a growing sense that your sin is wrong in and of itself, not just, oh, it's against the rules, but it's wrong, you're going in the right direction. If you have a growing sense that your sin is toxic and harmful to you and, and, and stops you from being the you that you should be, that your own selfishness is a cancer on you and you want to get rid of it, you're going in the right direction. If you have a growing sense that it's just right to want to please God, and to be pure and to move towards pleasing Him in all you say, do, and think, then that, I think, is one who is pure in heart. You see God as He really is, glorious in beauty, power, majesty, kindness, grace, mercy, and love. You see yourself in light of God's eyes upon you. You see yourself as selfish, petty, sinful, and filled with wrong that needs God's grace. You will see your selfish desires through the eyes of God that they are wrong and displeasing. Then if that is you, despite the fact that you haven't arrived, I think you fit pure in heart. What's the promise though? You shall see God. Jesus promises that those who are like this shall see God. Now, to us that sounds rather abstract, but to an original reader, a Jewish person hearing this, their greatest desire built into them from birth would be to see the one who created them, the glorious infinite one, whom no person can see face to face, would grant them by his grace to allow his dazzling, blindingly beautiful, holy beauty, perfection, goodness, excellency, love, and holiness to crash down upon him, them, in all of its glory, 
and they can see and commune and taste the beauty and the greatness of him. This is what awaits those who appear in heart. John Stott put it this way. He's a famous Christian theologian, writer, and pastor. Only the pure in heart will see God, see him now with the eye of faith, and see his glory in the hereafter. Only the utterly sincere can bear the dazzling vision of him in whose light the darkness of deceit must vanish. The promise is dazzling. We will see him. In this dark, broken, unsafe world, what a joy that will be. The godness of God will astound us and rapture us and thrill us. It will quench the deepest desires of your soul to see and experience beauty. It will satisfy the deepest hungers of your spirit to experience pure purity. It will satisfy the deepest needs of your emotions to feel infinite love. It's beautiful, and it will be yours if you're pure in heart. What's the problem? The problem, as we've already mentioned, is our hearts are not only not pure, but not undivided. What James describes as he talks to a church is people who desire and do not have, so we murder. You covenant and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel. We do not have because we do not ask. And then when we ask, we ask with wrong motives. This is a divided people, double-minded people. They've got one foot in the world and enjoying the world, which is not wrong, hear me now, and one foot in the realm of trying to have their loyalty with God. Here's our problem. Our problem is found... In verse 2, you desire and do not have. That word desire, epithumia, the Greek word, means to over-desire. Something which is good in and of itself you want too much of. Or you want to have too much when it's not time for you to have it. Food and drink and sex and pleasures of all kinds. Power and influence. These are good things. Rightly ordered in the right proportions at the right time as God knows them to be best for you, but we want to be God. We want them whenever we want, however much of them we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. That's why James can make this extremely provocative statement. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What does he mean? This world is great, and it is. This world gives us so much pleasure, and it does. The average Torontonian is even more confused. Why do you Christians hate the world so much? We don't hate it. It's just not the home we were meant to live in. It's a temporary home. It has good things, as even temporary homes do. But we're not to be satisfied with the temporary home because it's a pale imitation of our true home. A little bit like an orphanage, which can be great, but not meant to be a final home for kids. Who were never meant to live there. We were originally made in perfect, uncorrupted beauty, goodness, and greatness. In a world so dazzlingly perfect, we could not even today imagine it. Our first forefathers decided then to, to see if they could become equal with God. So Adam and Eve decided to go directly against what God asked them to do, what he commanded them to do, and they and we in them decided to assert our autonomy from God. We thought we knew better, and we left him. 
And we disobeyed him. We didn't listen. We left our father and said, I can do it myself. We self-orphaned, as it were. And we left paradise, Eden, our original and intended home. And we came here. And here became dark and dangerous and broken and corrupted. And so are we. And though this world remains beautiful, because it is, it's also calling you to make yourself satisfied with the level of beauty it can give you. Come and be satisfied with what I can give. It whispers in our ear, you don't need God and what He promises when you can have what I promise. Be satisfied with this world. Take the power I give you. Gorge yourself on the food and wine I provide for you. Be thrilled with the bodily pleasures and intellectual stimulations and pleasures I give you. Take me. Don't move past me to God. But this world with all of its beauty and all of its power and all of its glory was not meant to be our permanent home. It's meant to be the place where we point the world to the true home we were all called to be. It's meant to be the place where we as a community live such different lives that other people begin to go, wait a minute, there are some holes in this world. There are some ways that this world disappoints me. Maybe there is another home. And there is. If you've ever been to Manila in the Philippines, you would have possibly taken the time to go to this massive urban landfill when I visited. I was in Manila years ago. It's called the Smoky Mountain Garbage Dump, or more famously, it's usually called the City of Garbage. Visiting will break your heart. When I visited, there were hundreds of people there living in tin homes with blankets for a door. The residents would scour the landfill looking for recyclables to return, used clothing to sell. One family was making about $2 a day for a family of five. They had all kinds of sores and health issues from living on tons of oozing garbage. The misery there is breathtaking. Nobody wants to live there. They live there because they have nowhere else to go. We left Manila and went to the city of garbage. When we were in Manila, we were complaining about how humid it was, how polluted it was, how crowded it was. And then we went into the city of garbage, and when we walked out into the regular part of Manila, it felt like we were in Hawaii. Such was the contrast. Men and women, the gospel promises that when Jesus returns, he will bring back a world so much more beautiful than this that this world will feel like the city of garbage compared to the world that those who belong to Jesus, those who have faith in Jesus, will inherit. The people who live in the city of garbage don't think that this is the best that there is. They know enough to want to leave. But we, because this world is so much better, can fool ourselves into thinking this world has all we need. It doesn't. And we know that, don't we? There are moments of each of our lives when the veil is pulled back and we see this world for all of its sad reality. This world in its brokenness as pain crashes down upon you. The viruses that are spreading across the world. Volcanoes. The sex slavery. The selfishness. The jockeying for attention and fame and money and power and the movements that have to come to curb it. This world... I really hope this isn't the best there is. I'm so glad I know 
this isn't my true home. It is a temporary home. And we are self-designated orphans here until our true home is made ready and God our Father, Jesus our Redeemer, and the Spirit our Comforter finally welcome us home. And that's our final point. The problem is this world is so alluring to our selfishness. The pathway to purity is to see that it's not our true home, but there's one who came to bring us home. Look at what James says. He says in verse 6, but he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Point one of the pathway to purity. Turn to God. He gives more grace, it says. More grace than what? (laughs) More grace than our sin. More grace than our selfish desires and sinful passions. More grace than our world-loving, world-addicted souls deserve. The grace to see the world in all of its sadness and serve it instead of see the world in all our hunger and take from it. It's the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ, who saw our dark attachments to this world that allures us but ultimately leaves us empty who saw our deep defiance of God and our deep desire for autonomy, who saw our evil pride, our dark cruelty and decided in compassion to leave, not Hawaii, heaven itself, to come here. And imagine coming from pure, incorruptible purity and beauty into this world, what would it not feel like he had landed in the city of garbage? And would he not, when he first encountered this, has God gone, why does anybody want to still live here? Oh, it has remnants of my beauty. But how can this satisfy the depths of your soul? And then, having come down with us and become one of us, he exchanged the beauty of his own life for our moral filth. He bore the guilt of our sin. He took the garbage that was within us, morally speaking, and he took it out of us and took it upon himself and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me at this moment? His father in love allowed his son to feel orphaned. And his son in love for us allowed himself to be orphaned from God and experience God's judgment. And he took the city of garbage, moral garbage, upon himself. For God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so James says, he gives grace. Dive into his grace, it's for you. Secondly, submit to his love. Submit to the greater love and greater beauty, the greater worth of God. Draw near to him. Come to him in repentance, confessing your sins, admitting your pride. Come to him admitting that his love is greater than the love the world can give us. This world whose love can often be beautiful but is too often conditional So unlike God's unconditional love. This world that loves the young, the beautiful, the successful, the sexy, the proud, and the powerful. It makes the rest of us feel too much like garbage. Does not have a love like God. The world appeals to our pride. God appears to the humble. Jesus became garbage for us. 
He was not physically beautiful, but he was morally phenomenal, infinite in love. Pure humility. He now calls us, come to me. Draw near to me. Take my pureness upon yourself. Make it your own. Ask the Spirit to give you my purity. Turn to God. Secondly, turn away from sin. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Repentance. It's not just feeling sorry for our sins. It means turning away decisively from our sin. We need to see sin as toxic and cleanse our hands. We're all afraid of the coronavirus. We're doing everything we can to stay free from it. Next week, we're debuting a new way of doing communion that will be more protective of each of us because we're all afraid. We're taking every precaution. This is how we should see the virus. This is how we should see our sin. It's toxic. Corrupting. Fatal. It could kill. It killed the Son of God. He went to the cross and allowed Himself to be killed for sin. It is no laughing matter. We must see it as God sees it. See it as enmity with God. Don't claim you love God and nurse your sin. Don't claim you love God, but you harbor and nurse and allow to flourish God's enemy. Do you love God? Love what He loves. And what's the promise? Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. How will he exalt you? To the power and the glory of this world? No. No. He will exalt you to home. Your true home. To himself. You will see him face to face. That spring I felt guilty at Western. Frustrated. This first condemned me. That summer I went to a conference for the organization I was with, and I went to Whistler. Oh, Whistler and all of its beauty and glory in the summer and all those mountains. It is stunning. But I, something more, I saw something more stunning than that. In the middle of a conference room, singing a song by some college students were leading us called Amazing Grace. We sang Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. And then we got to the last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less time to sing God's praise than when we first began. And when that last verse began to be sung, I closed my eyes and I went somewhere I've never been. I physically was where I was. But for the next 20 minutes, Somehow, some way, I was ushered to another place and I was before the throne of God and I saw Him in all of His beauty. And the beauty and the joy of those 20 minutes and the glory that I beheld spiritually but truly is better than everything else I've ever seen. I've been to the mountains of Switzerland 
I've been to Rome. I've been to Paris. I've been to the shores of the Mediterranean, the Amalfi Coast. I've been, I've been to Kiev, Ukraine, on the day that they voted for freedom from the USSR, and I heard the cheers of the legislators. I've had some things happen that are amazing. All of them together are a pale imitation of those 20 minutes. Men and women, if you are a Christian, the 20 minutes I had are nothing compared to what each and every one of us will one day experience when we see God face to face and His beauty and Godness fills us to the brim. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and grace to us. And I ask now that you would fill us with your grace and your glory, that we may see you more deeply. And when we do that, we would see the world more clearly and see our sin more accurately and move from the one to you, turn from our sin, see the world as the pale imitation of you that it is, and move toward you, purify our hearts, do business with us now, help us to confess and repent for your joy and ours, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread, set it before them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. A little while later on that last night, he took a cup of wine. And he raised the cup up and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in memory of me. Jesus asked us to eat bread and to drink out of the cup to remember and participate and anticipate the grace that he gave. And the grace that he will give when he comes again. And so now, connected with the church throughout history and throughout the world, we will celebrate what we have always called in Christianity communion or the Lord's table. This is a feast of remembering, a feast of rejoicing, a feast of renewing. If you are here and you don't know where you are spiritually, we ask you to look at the prayers in the bulletin and locate yourself in your spiritual journey. See if they help. But if you are here and you are a baptized believer in Jesus, it doesn't matter what church you're from. This table is His and therefore it is yours. After I have prayed, gluten-free bread and both wine and grape juice will be passed through the aisles. You may take them as they come and partake of them in your own time. The wine is darker than the grape juice. I will pray now. And then the table will be open. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Come now and help us to purify our hearts and come to you, the God of all grace. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Table is open.